Behold, I am coming quickly. The question on our minds is, where are we in relationship to that coming and what's going on now? In the books of prophecy that we've been studying, the Revelation, and especially Daniel as a precursor to Revelation, we've been studying world history, and we've seen night after night an expansion of our understanding of the sequence of events. The very basic outline started from Daniel's time all the way to the return of Jesus, but we noticed when we studied Daniel chapter 7 that there was a judgment to occur before Jesus comes back. You saw the sequence where the judgment happens before Jesus comes back. And last night, our message was about the blood in the God's tent. Blood in God's tent, if you recall. And in ancient Israel, there was a day called the Day of Atonement. That that was their day of judgment. And it was to clean out all the sins and purge all the sins that accumulated all year long for the repentant people. And they were put on to the scapegoat, and he died, okay, in the wilderness, not as a sacrifice, but as a result of the sins that he had committed. Now we're going to build on that and look at the Bible's concept of judgment and then go back and see an even further expanded prophecy about this time of judgment that precedes the second coming of Jesus. We're still focusing on this time of judgment, and we're going to dive back into prophecy tonight. But before we start studying God's Word, what do we need to do first? Pray. Let's bow our heads, if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to know your will from your Word. Lord, bless us now as we study the Scriptures that you've given us. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to understand it. And more than that, Lord, help us to accept it as your voice to us tonight. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is consistent. By the way, take out study guide number nine. The prophecy no one understood. And I'm going to make a bit of a guarantee tonight that when we get to the end of this, usually I ask, I think I forgot to last night, but most every night I try to ask, did everything make sense? Was it clear? Do you understand? This evening I'm going to ask that and you're going to say, no. (laughs) There is something I do not understand because this is a prophecy that no one understands or at least no one understood at that time. And we're going to leave with a bit of a cliffhanger tonight that you have to come back for tomorrow night, right? So we're going to understand as much as we can for tonight. But tonight's message is entitled, The Prophecy No One Understood. Now, our first key tonight is that there is a judgment to take place after Christ's first coming. Let me demonstrate this to you clearly from the Scriptures. First, let's go to the Old Testament. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we're going to be going to chapter 12. I believe that's page 647 in your pew Bible. Ecclesiastes, if you get to the book of Psalms, right there in the middle, kind of turn to the right. Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. And notice how this book closes. It said here, we'll start with verse 13, but we'll finish with verse 14, of course. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. 
And if you read the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the most brilliant man who's ever lived wrestling with the great themes of life and the purpose of life and what should we do and what has God put us here for. And he says, here's the summary of the whole thing. Fear God and do what? Keep his commandments. For this is man's what? All. This is what God expects from humanity. To fear him, that is revere him, to love him, to have your heart for God and keep his commandments. As Jesus would say, if you love me, what should you do? Keep my commandments. He said, this is man's all. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then he says, verse 14, for God will bring every work into what? Judgment, including every what kind of thing? Secret thing, whether good or evil. So yes, we should love God, fear God, we should keep his commandments, and God is going to bring every work, even the work inside of our head, the thoughts, the intents, the motives, our very character will be tested and judged by God. Now, there is a theory out there that Jesus accomplished this judgment at the cross, that at the cross of Christ, the world was judged, and by that they mean judgment occurred then. But I want you to notice that consistently the writers of Scripture after the cross kept looking forward to a day of judgment. Let's see it in the New Testament now. Acts chapter 17 the same judgment that was anticipated in the Old Testament is still anticipated as a future event to those in the New Testament times after Christ died on the cross. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. This is page 1072 in your pew Bible. Acts 17, verse 31. Now, there's a lot we could say about the context of this passage, but look at the summary statement here. He says, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. So he's talking about God the Father has on His calendar, which, have you ever thought about that, that God operates on a calendar? Yes, He has a schedule. He's very efficient, very clockwork. He knows exactly. You look through the history of Scripture. I, I probably shouldn't take the time for tirade on this, but when God says it's going to be 400 years, in 400 years it happens. When God says it's going to be 70 years, 70 years is going to happen. When he says 1,260 years, it happens. And apparently in the same way, there's a day, there's a time set apart in God's prophetic calendar for this judgment to occur. Look again at the text. Again, verse 31. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is God the Father. But he's appointed someone to do it. And who is that person? Jesus Christ. By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by doing what? Raising him from the dead. So that man who's going to be judging the world on behalf of God the Father is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he says, we know for certain that that's going to happen because God has given evidence by raising him from the dead. So clearly the judgment that is being anticipated is after the cross because the judge himself was the one on the cross. Does that make sense? And now after his resurrection, there's going to be a judgment. I want to make sure this is chronology is very clear. Romans chapter 2, the next book of Scripture to the right. Romans chapter 2. You see a very similar explanation. Romans chapter 2 actually talks about judgment a great deal. 
found in the law and who's going to be judged by the law and what does that all mean? But notice verse 16, a summary statement again. He speaks of the day when God will judge the secrets of men by whom? Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. He said, this is the truth I'm preaching. By the way, the gospel presentation that Paul preaches includes a judgment to come. Always does. And he talks about the day, here's that calendar talk again, a schedule, the day when God will judge, so is that day future or past? Future. Will judge the secrets of men. This is the same judgment that Ecclesiastes was talking, looking forward to by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Very clear that there is a future judgment after Christ's death on the cross, after his first coming. Again, in the book of Romans, this time chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. When he was trying to correct people from judging each other, he has to clarify what judgment there is. And he notice he says in chapter 14 of Romans, verse 10, Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of what? Of Christ. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And again, future tense in the person doing the judgment is Jesus Christ. Over and over, we see this again. 2 Corinthians, let's go there. Again, just a couple books to the right, just progressing to the right in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Here the Apostle Paul once again hammers this home. For we must all appear before the what? Judgment seat of whom? Jesus Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So apparently there's a day when we're going to stand before Christ and receive what we've been judged according to our works. And he makes it very clear. Repeatedly, there's a day for it coming, it's on the calendar. Christ is the judge, and it's after his first coming. So people would say, oh, if it wasn't at the first coming, then we know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen at the second coming when he appears. Well, slow down. In the same way that the judgment happens after the first coming of Jesus, the same scripture that tells us that also tells us that it happens before the second coming of Jesus. Are you following with me? Are we tracking? The same Bible that says it happens after the first coming tells us it happens before the second coming. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 to make sure we see this very clearly. This will be a bit of a review, but I know that we can sometimes have what they call information overload. Have you ever been, as you're finding Daniel chapter 7, in a conversation with someone and they keep going, but you checked out like 10 minutes ago? people are like, how did you know what I'm going through right now? <laughs> but you can sit there and give all the responses, like, mm-hmm, somehow your body knows how to react to it. Like, are you with me? Like, mm-hmm, yeah. But you couldn't recall what they were saying to save your life. You get in the car, and somebody asks, what were they talking about? It's like, you know, I don't have a clue. 
I was sitting there nodding and smiling and whatnot, didn't want to hurt their feelings, but I was done, right? They were just saying too much. It was just all in here. It got to be a fog and bleh, right? I don't want the hap- that to happen with Bible prophecy, amen? I hope that we see it, retain it, and repetition is learning. So let's go to Daniel chapter 7 to remind ourselves of what we've already heard from Bible prophecy. Daniel chapter 7, if you recall, he sees a sequence of four beasts, right? Daniel chapter 7, we'll just see it right here, verse 3, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Then, when he gets to the interpretation, still in chapter 7, go down to verse 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are, are four what? kings or kingdoms which arise out of the earth. And much like we've already seen, he saw in Daniel chapter 2, now he sees a sequence of four kingdoms. They're not actual literal beasts, they just represent kingdoms. And we've gone through this before, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, still Rome, but then divided Rome. Then he sees a little horn of Rome. Then he sees a courtroom scene, a judgment scene, and then Christ comes again. Look again at the scripture. You see the pictures there. We see the same sequence over and over. Look at verse 8 of Daniel chapter 7. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So just a smooth transition from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, empire of Rome, divided kingdoms of Rome, and then the little horn of Rome. And the very next thing he sees, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And here's our key. The what was seated? Court was seated. And what happened? The books were opened. So the Ancient of Days assembles this great courtroom scene. Literally ten thousand times ten thousand, which if I'm not mistaken is a hundred million if you were to take it. Literally lots and lots of onlooking witnesses. Court is seated, and books were open. This is a judgment scene. Now, go down to verse 13. Who's involved with this? You say, well, that's God the Father. And in all the other passages, it said it was going to be Jesus Christ who was doing the judging. Well, let's look what happens next. Look at verse 13. I was watching in the night's visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And your initial reaction could be, see, that's talking about the second coming of Jesus to the earth. But as the key for most every question in the Bible, just keep reading. Where is he going? Is he going to the earth now? No. Look what it says. He came to where? The Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. So Christ is now ushered into this court to do what work? Judgment. 
the work that all the Bible writers have been looking forward to Christ doing, he now goes into this courtroom scene. The books are open, and Christ is ushered in to render judgment. Then it says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. So my question is, which comes first? The judgment or the kingdom? The judgment. And the result of the judgment gives him the kingdom. You see what I'm saying? So he doesn't inherit a kingdom, come down on the earth, and then start judging people. Which many people have this picture, when Jesus comes again, then he'll set up a throne, and then he'll call all the nations before him, and then start judging. But apparently, according to Scripture, that's already occurred by the time he returns that the judgment actually precedes the second coming. Again, look at verse 25. Same chapter. When Daniel asks for the interpretation, again, speaking of that little horn, that's where his focus is. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time times, and half a time. So you notice the sequence again. The interpretation follows the same sequence that the vision followed. Okay? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, little horn who has a rule of 1,260 years. Or time, times, and half a times. Then what's the next thing that occurs? Verse 26. But the what? Court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume it and destroy it forever. And then look at the sequence, verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Have we made the point clearly that the sequence of the vision and the sequence of the interpretation places the judgment of Christ before the second coming of Christ? Hopefully so. If not, repeat it over and over till you see that that is the sequence the Bible outlines. Thus, it makes sense when we go to the book of Revelation, the very last page of the Bible, which talks about his second coming, you see the same sequence repeated. Revelation chapter 22, the very last page of Scripture. Look at verses 11 and 12 and see the parallel to what Daniel was shown in Daniel chapter 7. We're going to Revelation chapter 22. Verses 11 and then 12. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. This is a declaration that Jesus is giving. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. You see, there are two groups of people. The filthy and the unrighteous versus the righteous and holy. And apparently that determination is made prior to his second coming. How do we know? Just keep reading. Look at the very next verse. And behold, I am what? Coming quickly. And notice this. And my what is with me? And my reward is with me To give to everyone according to his what? When are those works judged? 
when Christ returns? No. Beforehand, and he brings with him not the judgment seat and they're going to lay out the courtroom. No, no, no. That's already happened in heaven. What's he bringing with him? The reward. The reward. The determination for who's righteous or unrighteous, holy or unholy, filthy or clean, has already been determined by Christ. He's simply coming to dole out the rewards of our works. Is that clear so far? Okay. Now, let's turn over to the other side of our worksheet. With that sequence in mind, we turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 seems the natural place to go after Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 8. Now we're ready for a new vision. Hopefully you're familiar enough that if put on the spot, you could explain to someone what Daniel was shown in Daniel chapter 2. Yes? The image and the four kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7, four beasts which represent four kingdoms, but there's two pieces of additional information in Daniel chapter 7. Does anyone be brave enough and tell me what they are? The first thing he sees is the little horn and then that judgment scene. But both of them end with the coming of Christ, yes, and the kingdom that will never be, will never be gone away. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Now pause right here. When Daniel says, after the one that appeared to me the first time, how many visions has Daniel had prior to this? One. Daniel chapter 2 wasn't his vision, was it? Whose was it? It was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel was just told the interpretation to give to him. He was the middleman, right? But the first time in the book of Daniel where Daniel himself is laying in bed and God gives him a vision, speaks directly to him, is in Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of King Belshazzar, if you recall. Now it's the third year of King Belshazzar. And he gets another one and he says, like the one I was given before. Like the first one. Now, verse 2, I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, there are some similarities here to previous visions. First of all, when Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, had his first vision of his own directly, he didn't first see four beasts. What was the very first thing he saw? If you recall... If you remember, he saw the great sea being turned up, right? So he sees an expanse of water, and out of those come these beasts. Now he sees in this one, there's the river, and he looks up and behold, beasts. Daniel's like, I'm good at this now. I'm putting the pieces together. All right, we got water, we got beasts. Let's go. He's ready. Now, from your scholarly position 
as interpreters of Bible prophecy. Given what we've seen in Daniel chapter 2, the sequence, and Daniel chapter 7, repeating that same sequence, what do you think this first beast will represent? Kingdom, yes, but which kingdom do you think it will be? Babylon, right? But look at the characteristics. It doesn't quite match. Remember, what's the title of our message tonight? Somebody remember the title of our message tonight, right? Come on, now the prophecy no one understood, right? So we're expecting it to be one thing, and I'm guessing Daniel's doing the same thing. He's like, oh, this is just like the one I just had. There's water, there's the beast, I've got this one. But he notices it's not quite the same. Why? Well, we'll continue. Again, verse 3, Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Now, if you were to look back for a beast that had one side bigger or stronger or higher than the other, you would not think of the lion. You would think of the bear, right? And if you go all the way back to Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold was just one head, right? But the chest and arms of silver had two arms and one stronger than the other, right? So having two parts, one stronger than the other, doesn't match with Babylon. It matches with what empire? Medo-Persia. Apparently this vision has a different starting point than the other ones. But we haven't even gotten to the interpretation yet. But we're already putting the pieces together. Now, what was this ram doing? Verse 4. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward. There's only one direction left, and that's the one he came from, which is eastward, right? So he's pushing this way, and up, and down, north, south, west. And then it says, so that no animal could withstand him. And again, in vision, what do these animals represent? Kingdoms, right? These beasts represent kingdoms. So then no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became what? Great. So the first beast that he sees is a what? Ram. And it charges west, north, south. No other kingdom can stand in its way. And it becomes great. But the vision continues. Verse 5, and as I was considering, this seems to be a thing that Daniel does. He'll be given a part of a vision, he'll be thinking about it, and while he's thinking about it, the next part comes. And as I was considering, slowly a male, what? Goat. Came from the where? Where was the ram coming from? East. The goat's coming from the, do you see a problem? If this was a film, this is where the tense music would come in. Dun-dun. What's going to happen? You know? Because you got the ram who's charging every which way coming from the east, and you got the goat coming from the west, and you know a showdown's on the horizon. Watch what happens. How is he moving? Suddenly, a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without doing what? Touching the ground. If you're traveling without touching the ground, what form of transportation is that? That's flying, right? 
So this guy's coming suddenly, without touching the ground, out of the west. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. One prominent horn is on this beast. Verse 6, then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Clearly, in the battle between the goat and the ram, who wins? The goat. Therefore, verse 8, the male goat grew very great. Do you see an escalation? Great has now become very great. But when he became strong, The large horn was what? Now, does it say it was broken by an attack? It was broken by some other animal, some other beast? No. He gets all big and strong, and then it just breaks. It's a little bit bizarre. But what happens in its place? And in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a what? Have we seen a little horn before? Absolutely we have. So you can, you're right there with Daniel, trying to get your positioning in the chronology, in the timeline. All right, we know this one matches this one, and we know this little horn, but it's different, but I've got some, sta- I've got some landmarks here. I can kind of put a flag in, and I know where I am. Again, verse 9, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew what kind? exceedingly great. Do you see the the progression? Great was the ram. Very great was the goat. But this little horn grows exceedingly. Its greatness exceeds all the others. Did you see that in the progression? Remember in Daniel chapter 2? It gets stronger and stronger as it marches towards Rome. Though it starts with gold, it ends up with what? Iron. And this one, the same thing. You have great, very great, and exceedingly great. But notice what happens here. Again in verse 9, And out of one of, the, one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew to the host of heaven, Now, if you recall, every other power in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 was only interested in politics and geography and military and conquest here on earth. Until, that is, we saw the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, and it spoke pompous words against the Most High. It tried to make war against the saints of the Most High, tried to change times and laws, if you recall. Here again now, we see the little horn, and what is it doing? It grows up to the host of heaven, and it cast some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted whom? Himself. Sounds like the little horn from Daniel 7. Here it is in chapter 8. 
as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily, and that little word sacrifices is included in scripture there, uh, in the translation there, but the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his what? Sanctuary was cast down. There's a reason we had the message last night about the form and structure and services of the sanctuary, because it gives us a heads up for what's coming in Daniel chapter 8. The place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn. Does this have its own army? No, it has to borrow the armies of others. To oppose the daily, again, sacrifices, and he cast truth to, down to the ground. So his war is not just against politics, it's against God himself and his truth. Much like we saw that it was pompous words and speaking against and prevailing against the saints of God and trying to change the times and laws. He's, his argument is not just with man, but it's with God himself. Then we read in verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking. So Daniel's just kind of watching this happen. And in vision he hears one holy one, I, I assume an angel, whoever's with him in this vision, right, speaking, and another one answers him. So he's listening to this conversation go on while he's still in vision. Again, verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, we don't have to exactly understand the question, but we know the premise is he's looking for a length of time. He's looking, how long will it be for this to continue? And he said to me, verse 14, for 2,300 what? Days. Then the sanctuary shall be what? Cleansed. Now from our lesson on Daniel chapter 7, we learned how to interpret Bible time prophecies. That in Bible prophecy, a day in prophetic time equals how long in literal time? A year. A day equals a year. So when you see a prophecy that is for 2,300 days, you know that it's talking about in real time 2,300 years. And what happens apparently at the end of 2,300 years? And then, he says, the sanctuary will be what? We learned last night what the cleansing of the sanctuary was about. That's that day of judgment, the day of atonement, where the high priest goes into the most holy place to rid the whole congregation of their sins, to place them back on their instigator. And the cry is, when will this cleansing happen? And he says, at the end of 2,300 years, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. That's the end of the vision. That's the end of the vision. Now look at verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. By the way, did he understand it immediately? No. If you don't get it, you're in good company. Neither did Daniel. 
Again, it happened to me when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. Then suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So now God's looking down from his throne. He says, I've got Daniel down here who received the message, but he doesn't get it. Gabriel, go tell him what it means. Make him understand. And because he's a loyal angel, he says, yes, sir, boom, and he's off on his way. There he's standing before you, standing before Daniel. And it says in verse 17, so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, what's that first word? Understand. What's he come here to do? Give him understanding. Understand, son of man, that the revision refers to what? The time of the end. He says, first of all, I'm here to tell you it's not now. Calm down. The vision, let me just put your mind at ease, is for way at the time of the end. Now, this might be a helpful point to point out. There's a difference between the end of time and the time of the end. I'll say that again. There's a difference between the end of time and the time of the end. Okay? When you think of the time of the pharaohs or the time of the Renaissance, or the, it's not a point, right? It's a season. Where the end of time, you run into a wall, there's the end. It's one is a point, the end of time is a point. The time of the end is that time leading up to the end. Do you see the difference? And he says, this vision, what you've just seen, is about the time of the end. But is Daniel satisfied with that explanation? Don't worry, it's for a long time from now. Well, still, I'd like to know what it means. Even if I'm not going to live through it, I'd like to see what it's all about. So the conversation continues. Verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. Notice this. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. He's like, don't worry, what you've just seen refers to this time of the end, but God has a prophetic calendar when things are going to occur on time. And he says, I'm here because God told me to make you understand, so understand this. It's for a long time from now, at the time of the end, but at the appointed time, it will occur. Then he explains. The ram which you saw having the two horns... They are the kings of whom? Median purchase. So just in case you think, oh, you're just making that up, I don't know. Gabriel says, I'm here to make you understand, media and Persia. Let me guess. Do you think Daniel has already put that together? Yeah. Friends, if you and I can put that together, Daniel put that together. But he's reviewing the whole vision. He said, all right, the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of what? Greece. By the way, do you just find it fascinating that he's still living in the kingdom of Babylon and he's telling them that the next empire is going to be a combination of the Medes and Persians 
And then the one after that, they're going to be the Greeks. He names them hundreds of years before they come into power. Pretty cool. But is that where Daniel's mind is focused? I want to know who the next political ruler of, ah, I don't care. <laughs> I want to know about that spiritual thing, right? Notice what it says. Again, verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And if anyone knows their world history, tell me, who was the king of Greece that expanded the Greek empire and was known as what this? Alexander the what? Great. Bible prophecy says there'd be one who is going to be very great. I mean, great, then very great, then exceedingly great. It's Alexander the Great takes over. This is interesting that they call him that. But we go on. The large horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. But that's not the point of the vision, is it? It's about that little horn. That's where the focus has been all along. And in the latter time of their kingdom, so whatever the kingdom comes, it's after the one that was broken. In the latter time of that kingdom, so by the way, we're referring to Rome here, but is it really focused on pagan imperial Rome? No. Is it focused on the divided political Rome? No. It's focused on what aspect of Rome? Papal Rome, the little horn. So in the latter part of that kingdom, there's going to rise up this little horn. Notice this now. A king shall arise, having fierce features. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Again, does he have his own army? In the, no. He has to borrow other people's. His influence is just spiritual, but he makes people do what he wants. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. And he shall destroy the mighty and also what kind of people? So his issue is not just against the strong people of this world, but the holy people God has ordained for the next world, right? It's a spiritual power. Verse 25, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt whom? himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken. How? Without human means. And then he says in verse 26, And the vision of the evening and mornings, which of course is the culmination of the vision, when shall the sanctuary be cleansed? At the end of the 2,300 years, that's when it'll be cleansed. And he says, and the vision of the eating mornings, which was told, is true. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Daniel thought it was true to start with? Was he assuming that part of it was like a counterfeit or a lie or a falsehood? Of course not. And he said, in that last part about the evening and mornings, the 2,300 days or 2,300 years, when the sanctuary shall be cleansed, when God will bring in that judgment, which will culminate with the second coming, that part's true too. Had Daniel had a vision about a little horn before? Yes. How about Greek? Greece? Yes. Medo-Persia? Yes. What's the one thing he doesn't understand? is this cleansing of the sanctuary, when it's going to begin. And he says, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. 
It's a long time from now, as I said, so your job is to write it down. Very good, good on you. Now roll it up, put a seal on it, put it on the shelf. Do you think Daniel appreciated that interpretation? Now, I'm sure he was thankful the Lord gave him some clarification. Good, now I'm confirmed about Medo-Persia. Good, I know the name of Greeks. That's great. I'm hearing more about the little horn. Good, good, good. Covering the same ground. But that new piece of information, remember prophecy always repeats and then expands, repeats and expands. He said that new piece of information about the 2,300 days, it's the one thing you didn't tell me. He's like, well, it's true. Well, I know it's true. Good. Now roll it up. Be done. Look at Daniel's response. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, what? Fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one, what? Understood it. Mm. So let's go back to our worksheet now. No one understood it. The prophecy, no one understood Isn't it frustrating how Daniel 8 closes with no explanation except there, yep, it's true. I'm thinking Daniel thought that was frustrating too. In fact, he passes out. He's sick for days. And I guess he just kind of grogs around. I can't believe I've got this thing stuck in my head that he wouldn't give me the answer to. Prophecy that no one understood. But let's see what we do understand. Again, notice the sequence of Daniel chapter 8. It does not start with Babylon. It starts instead with what empire? The Medes and Persians, Medo-Persia. Then it moves to Greece, and then it talks about Rome, but it doesn't really cover pagan Rome, the imperial Rome. It doesn't cover divided Rome. It goes straight for the little horn. In the latter time of that kingdom, there's going to be this. Notice the emphasis is always moving more and more spiritual and less and less off of the things here. And then it concludes with the cleansing of the sanctuary, or the judgment scene. But you also notice what else is missing in Daniel chapter 8. There's no Christ getting his kingdom and the saints inheriting the earth. So it's got two different bookends. It's missing the first part of Babylon, and it doesn't even end with Jesus coming. It just has this cleansing of the sanctuary, which will happen later. That's all he's got. Just like Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, the emphasis in Daniel 8 is on Rome, especially the Roman papacy. Now let's notice the sanctuary. You heard that word several times in, the, in chapter 8, but I want to draw your attention to something else you might have skimmed past. It's okay. But look at this. The beasts shown. Tell me about the beasts in Daniel 8 versus the beasts in Daniel 7. Do you see any differences between them? Anybody want to make a recommendation? Okay, someone said sacrificial. Let's start with just the obvious. The beasts shown in Daniel 8 are clean. If you notice, the other ones are wild animals like lions and leopards and bears and whatnot, and then there's this terrible beast. I mean, But in Daniel chapter 8, rams, goats, they're clean. They're domestic. In fact... Somebody, you've already said it, they're sacrificial animals, right? And where would they be employed? In the sanctuary process. Remember from last night. 
the beasts were sacrificed, and specifically, let's go even farther, let's up the ante a little bit. They're not just the -the run-of-the-mill sacrificial animals. Both of these animals were used on one particular day of the year, the Day of Atonement. These, think of it, Daniel grew up as a Jew from Jerusalem, from Judea. Was he aware of the sacrificial system? Absolutely. When he talks about the daily and the sacrifices that go on every day, does he know about that? Yes. When he sees a ram, like the one that Abraham saw caught in the thicket, the Lord will provide a sacrifice, right? He sees a ram, and he's not thinking the same thing as lion or bear or leopard or dragon or whatever. He's thinking sacrifice. And then he sees the goat, because the ram is used every day, but a goat is employed at one point on the Day of Atonement. So already his mind is firing on all pistons thinking about the sanctuary needs to be cleansed. The sanctuary, this is the cleansing of the sanctuary, this is the Day of Atonement. This is judgment. The beasts shown are clean and they are used as sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And notice again the language, Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. It speaks of the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Apparently, this Antichrist power has a, has a specific vendetta against the sanctuary and its proceedings. He does not like it. I think there's good reason for him not to like it, for at least from his perspective. But the place of a sanctuary cast down. Notice again in verse 13, the question is asked, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So apparently there's been some trampling down of the sanctuary, some impurifying of it, that it needs to be cleansed. It needs to be cleaned out. And the question is, how long will this go on? And the answer is given in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, if you notice also that in verse... Chapter uh, chapter 8, verse 25, notice what it says there. After it talks about the king that would rise up in the latter times with the fierce features and all the horrible things he's going to do against God's people. But notice what it says in verse 25. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself where? In his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes but he shall be broken. How? Without human hands. Apparently, this spiritual battle, when every time you see something, that phrase, without human hands, what does it mean? I mean, it's pretty on the nose obvious, but what does it mean? It's not something man does, it's something that God does. We see several examples of this. For instance, we've already seen this, and you might have missed it from Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember something from Daniel chapter 2 that happened without hands, without human hands? The stone was cut out. The stone was cut out without human hands, and then it came to the earth and smashed the statue. This without human hands seems to have taken place up in heaven, carves out a stone, that's the kingdom, then the king smashes the things, executes justice, and sets up his kingdom. The cutting out without human hands takes first in heaven, then it smashes the kingdoms. Does that make sense? Here, you have 
this little horn power railing and railing and railing against God and his law and his people and his sanctuary. But it says he's going to be ended, but without human hands. This is a heavenly thing. It's fascinating. And of course, the sanctuary, why does he have a particular beef against the sanctuary? Because, friends, the sanctuary is all about, centers on, exclusively revolves around Jesus Christ. The sanctuary, look at every aspect right here in your, in your notes. Please notice that we see that the sanctuary, the entire plan of salvation, is revealed in this sanctuary system. For instance, the lamb, where was the lamb that was offered? We talked about this last night, but it's a review. Where was the lamb that was offered as a sacrifice? Where did it grow up? In the camp with the people, right? Where did Christ grow up? He didn't come to earth at 30 years of age, dum da da dum I'm here, ready to do my mission. No, he was born how? As a baby. And he grew up. And he spent a while just among the people. In fact, was the place where he grew up particularly well-known for good behavior or had a bad reputation? <laughs> Remember when the early disciples found another disciple and says, come see, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And he was like, ah. Can any good thing? <laughs> and that's where Christ grew up. Out in the camp with us. By the way, praise the Lord that we have a high priest in the sanctuary who understands what it's like to be here. He can sympathize with us. We don't have a distant God who has no understanding. No, God came to be with us. He grew up in our camps. Somebody say amen. Then, the transference of guilt. He goes into the courtyard being that sacrificial lamb. He didn't just grow up, but now he's been chosen out. He's been picked. He's the one. And if you recall, the scripture says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The hands being put on that lamb represents the guilt of humanity being placed on the sinless Son of God. Scripture says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, what? For us. The substitutionary death of the sacrificial lamb, did Jesus fulfill that? Absolutely. Absolutely he did. Upon the cross, even Paul employs this term in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, our Paschal Lamb, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. It's Jesus Christ. John cried out when he saw Jesus coming, Behold, the what? The Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. He was the living, breathing fulfillment of all those ceremonial laws that pointed to the Savior. He was the Savior. Now, the priest, who does the priest represent? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the lamb in the camp, the lamb on the altar, and then he takes his own blood. If you recall, in, in Hebrews chapter 8, he had to have something to offer, but it wasn't just the regular blood of lambs and bulls and goats. It was the blood of Jesus Christ himself. But what's the only way you can take your own death to heaven? You've got to come back to life, right? So Christ raises to life, ascends into heaven, 
And when he comes in, he looks like a lamb having been slain. Let me show you that, by the way. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation depicts the scene where Jesus returns from the earth, mission accomplished. Revelation chapter 5. John is shown a vision of the throne room of heaven just as Jesus, in fact, just before Jesus enters from mission accomplished here on earth. And notice what we read in verse, chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So what's John's response? So I wept much. By the way, the Greek word there is not just like, I do a little crying. He's bawling. He's wailing. He's completely undone. To him, this is the end of all things. There's no one who can open the scroll. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And what does he see? And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a what? In what condition? As though it had been slain. He brings the evidence of his own death with him to the courts of heaven. He has been the sacrifice, and now he takes up the priesthood. In the sanctuary structure, the camp and the courtyard represent the earth where we can go. But beyond the veil where we can't see, where only the priest could go, is Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Do you follow along? So Christ resurrects, ascends into heaven, and he goes into the holy place as our priest, interceding, pleading his blood on our behalf. It's a beautiful picture. But you recall from our thing, there wasn't just the camp and there wasn't just the court and there wasn't just the holy place. There's that one other room. The most holy place or the holy of holies. And only the high priest goes in there. But friends, we have a high priest, yes? And there's an appointed time when he goes from intercession to judgment. Yes? The sanctuary process, the system, is a prophecy of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Why do you think the Antichrist doesn't want you to see the sanctuary? Because you will see Jesus, who is the sanctuary, yes? There's a reason he wants to trample the sanctuary down and make sure. But God says, don't worry. He's going to have his time. But at the appointed time, the sanctuary will be cleansed. And that responsibility for sin will be placed back on its instigator. Again, you've got to come back to our message, the day the devil dies. But now let's put the pieces together from Daniel chapter 8. We're done now. Let's go finish it out with a little bit of review. Daniel chapter 2, we get a general overview of human history. 
from a political standpoint. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, Jesus comes back. Daniel doesn't lose a wink of sleep. No problem. No mention of Daniel being worried at all. Daniel chapter 7 repeats the same territory, right? But now we see the little horn, or the Antichrist power, and the duration of his reign for 1,260 years. He's given additional information. Also, he's shown a heavenly judgment before the return of Christ, also revealed. And the result, Daniel is greatly troubled. And finally, in Daniel chapter 8, the focus once again is on the little horn and his blasphemous, violent activities. Daniel is told the judgment in heaven will begin at the end of how long? 2,300 years. But what's missing? Starting point. (laughs) If somebody says at the end of this time period, something will occur, well, you've got the event, you've got the duration, but you don't know the starting point. And Daniel says, I need to know. And he says, the vision of the 2300 evenings and mornings is true. Seal it up. He's like, but you're going to leave me not knowing? Yep. No starting point for the 2300 years is given, and the vision stalls. Notice it doesn't complete the vision because there's no mention of Christ's kingdom, his dominion that shall last forever and ever. There's no mention of that. It stalls out in the judgment. What's the focus of Daniel chapter 8? The sanctuary process, specifically the Day of Atonement, the judgment where Christ is the high priest. The animals bear that out. The sanctuary language bears that out. In fact, he's dropped off in the most holy place on the cleansing of the sanctuary, and he says, why don't you just stay there for a while? Think about this. We'll pick it up later. So Daniel fainted and was sick. He was astonished by the vision, but no one, what? Understood it. The prophecy no one understood. Now, I praise the Lord that the Bible doesn't stop at Daniel chapter 8. And the book of Daniel doesn't even stop at Daniel chapter 8. He has another vision, but for the time being, he says, just deal with what I've given you and take that for now, and we'll come back to it. Let me tell you, friends, the appointed time is certain, and the Bible tells us when that judgment begins. And tomorrow night, you'll find out when it is. But you need to come back. If you have any questions, please put them in the question basket, and if you have any friends, bring them with you. But I appreciate Now let me ask you the question. Has tonight's presentation been clear? Can you raise your hand, please? All right. If they're unclear things at all, again, please write them down. We'll address them in a question and answer. But if not, I praise the Lord that we've communicated this part clearly. But you have to come back tomorrow night to get the rest of the story. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who has a process for ending sin and for cleansing the universe of Satan and his effects. Lord, we want to be a part of your side. We want to be vindicated in the judgment. So Lord, let us abide in you so that when you appear, we need not be ashamed, but we can have confidence before you. Lord, continue to bless us as we study your word and keep us safe till we meet again. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.